The best kind of spaces are the ones that have seen so much history, it almost feels like they have a heartbeat of their own. You walk inside, or where the inside of some now-abandoned, crumbling ruin used to be, and you can almost feel that life in all of its conditions played out in one singular place. And it gives that place a story all of its own. I don't think I've ever done an entire episode on a place before. And I'm excited for this episode, because for the first time I was able to research it on location from inside of this historic, ever-lively place. The Monte Vista Hotel. There are several hotels named the Monte Vista. The one we're talking about today is in Flagstaff, Arizona. It first opened for business on New Year's Day, 1927. I know 1927 may not seem like that long ago, and it's not compared to buildings that have been standing for centuries more. And while it hasn't seen things like Viking invasions, the Black Plague, or any deaths by guillotine, it has seen love, murder, prohibition, mysterious underground tunnels, some groundbreaking radio, authors, Hollywood, and some swear a ghost or two. It's experienced a century stuffed full with all the ins and out of the human condition packed into 73 rooms and a cocktail bar. The Monte Vista Hotel is steeped in both history and local lore. You can't talk about the Monte Vista's history without also examining the legends associated with it. For that reason, this episode is presented a little differently than usual. The first half is all history. The second half is all lore, and I can't wait to tell you about it. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The Monte Vista is situated in the mountain town of Flagstaff in northern Arizona, about 7,000 feet, or 2,100 meters, up on the Colorado Plateau. Just to the north, Arizona's highest peak, Mount Humphreys, at 12,633 feet, overlooks the city below. It sits within the largest ponderosa pine forest in the world, and sees all four seasons. It's within the San Francisco Volcanic Field, which, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, has produced over 600 volcanoes over 6 million years, with the most recent eruption having occurred a little over a thousand years ago, between 1040 and 1100 CE, when Sunset Crater, the state's youngest volcano, erupted. There is still an active magma chamber moving around underneath the Earth, which could cause more eruptions later but probably not for a couple hundred more years or so, so we're okay. While the volcanic activity hasn't affected Flagstaff's more recent populations, it did uproot many of the native Sinawa settlements that thrived in the area. First Nations populations have been living in and around the Flagstaff area for thousands of years. Many tribes, including the Diné or Navajo, Hopi, Anasazi, Havasupai, Wallapai, and Kaibab Paiute all have ancestral ties to the land and the mountains of Flagstaff. 
Arizona became the 48th state in 1912, the last of the contiguous 48 to be admitted into the U.S. Before that, it became the Arizona Territory in 1863, and before that, it was a part of Mexico until it was ceded to the U.S. in 1848, when it became part of the New Mexico Territory. In 1848, Congress sent out various parties to map the new territory, find resources, and report on what they saw. The reports on the Flagstaff area all came back fairly optimistic. It was a land rich in timber and much lusher than the deserts found at lower elevations. On July 4, 1876, a small group of travelers making their way to California decided to celebrate the U.S. centennial. They made camp at what is now Flagstaff, cut the limbs and shaved the bark off of one of the numerous ponderosa pine trees in the area, and hoisted up a U.S. flag. When they packed up and moved on to California, they left their flag staff behind, and it became a landmark for the parties that followed in their footsteps. That group of travelers and their makeshift pine tree flagpole are what gave Flagstaff its name. It took some time for Flagstaff to boom. There was no port for shipping goods, and it was relatively isolated. The first pioneers were sheep ranchers, since there was grass and water, and the wool from their sheep didn't spoil on the long journeys to distant markets, like those in Boston. Flagstaff's isolation was temporary, because when the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad made its way westward in 1880, it brought entrepreneurs and workers with it. Shops, gambling houses, dance halls, and saloons popped up, servicing the workers at the new lumber mill, taking advantage of the huge ponderosa forest that still surrounds Flagstaff today. By 1881, the population had grown to around 200. In 1882, many of the railroad workers who had made their way to Flagstaff with the railroad moved on to California, but some stayed behind, increasing the population. Flagstaff became a popular stop, offering water and services to those passing through. The camp, with its makeshift flagpole, was finally incorporated as an official town by 1894. That same year, Lowell Observatory was established. In 1930, this would be where Clyde W. Tumbaugh discovered Pluto. In 2006, when Pluto lost its planetary status, many in the town were pretty bummed out. Flagstaff grew. Many of the original structures are no longer standing because they were made of timber. Timber that burns easily during fire season. Due to the forest fires in 1897, the city of Flagstaff passed an ordinance that all buildings in the business area were to be built of brick, and many of those still stand. These include buildings like the Hotel Weatherford, finished in 1900, which still stands today. Zane Grey, an American author famous for his early 20th century novels idealizing the American western frontier, wrote his novel The Call of the Canyon on the third floor there. He wrote over 90 books, many of which were eventually made into films. Next to the Hotel Weatherford, the town's opera house was built, first called the Majestic Opera House, then later renamed the Orpheum, which is what it still goes by today. The Arizona Normal College, now Northern Arizona University, opened its doors to students in 1899. And by 1910, the transcontinental telephone service reached Flagstaff. The town was shifting from frontier to civilization. 
The town continued to boom with the construction of historic Route 66 that paved its way through the town. Route 66, which was established in 1926, was the first all-weather highway in the U.S. It ran from Chicago, Illinois to Los Angeles, California, reducing the distance between the Midwest and the West Coast by 200 miles. It was an incredibly popular route and brought thousands of tourists to the mountain town. To accommodate the rise in tourism, it became apparent that Flagstaff would need a new hotel. One that could not only compete with the Hotel Weatherford, but one that could bring first-class accommodations with it. In 1926, the town began fundraising, taking investments from prominent citizens, including Zane Gray. On June 8, 1926, ground was broken, and the 73-room hotel, then called the Community Hotel, opened for business on New Year's Day, 1927. Flagstaff was putting on the Ritz. The hotel is now known as the Monte Vista, which means Mountain View. That name was apparently chosen by a 12-year-old contest winner. Feels like the kid might have had some help with that one. If I got to name a hotel when I was 12, I probably would have named it something like Frankenstein or Power Ranger. Known as the Monte V to locals, this hotel is still running today, decked out in all its 1920s and 30s glory, and it is listed on the U.S. Registrar of Historic Places. The history of the Monte Vista didn't just happen above ground. Beneath downtown Flagstaff, there is a series of underground tunnels. They connect some of the older buildings to one another in a dark network of dirt and cold stone. Today, these tunnels are used as storage for businesses and house some of the gas, electric, and water systems used by the city. Some of the old entrances have been closed up and bricked over. Not everyone agrees on how these tunnels were used over the 100-plus years they have existed. Historian and local Jim Babbitt explains in a seven-minute documentary on the tunnels called The Forgotten Underground, that the tunnels were merely used as a means of heating the city's old buildings. The Flagstaff Electric Company generated steam by burning waste from the lumber mill. That steam was then used to heat the downtown buildings via this network of tunnels. Others, like Joseph Meehan, curator of the Pioneer Museum, discussed the alleged use of the tunnels for more nefarious means. This may have included the facilitation of illegal card games. If the police came to the door, a clerk could push a button that would ring a buzzer down in the basement where there was gambling going on. Having been warned, all the players could escape through the tunnels and come out of another business or building half a block away. There are also rumors of opium dens and moonshine distilleries having existed in the tunnels. According to the Monte Vista's own website, quote, Opium dens, moonshine distilleries, gambling machines, and other relics have been discovered in the depths of Flagstaff's underworld." Unquote. Unfortunately, I have not been able to verify that claim in any other source I've found in my research so far. If anyone out there knows any more about anything found in Flagstaff's tunnels, please email me. I'd love to know. It's also been suggested that the tunnels were used by Chinese migrant workers in the early 1900s. 
There was a fire around that time that was particularly devastating to downtown Flagstaff and caused a lot of damage. Chinese workers were blamed for the fire, with locals citing their cooking practices, even though there seems to be no real evidence that the fire had been caused by Chinese workers. To escape harassment, it's said that these workers began using the tunnel system to move around downtown Flagstaff without being harassed. By the 1940s, the steam system used in the tunnels was replaced by buildings implementing their own heating systems, and the tunnels were largely forgotten until Flagstaff began renovating the downtown area in the 1990s. Without more clear evidence or investigation, we won't know for sure what happened down in the dark tunnels that still exist beneath the Monte Vista. While we don't know for sure if the tunnels were used for nefarious means, they certainly would have come in handy when Prohibition hit Flagstaff. Between 1920 and 1933, when the manufacture, sale, and transport of liquor were illegal, people had to come up with increasingly clever ways to party. The Monte Vista's Cocktail Lounge was a place where the citizens of Flagstaff could go to indulge in the illegal consumption of alcohol. The hotel's Cocktail Lounge opened during the Prohibition era under the guise of a newspaper publishing house. According to the Monte Vista's website, there was a major bootlegging operation and a speakeasy situated here. In 1931, local authorities discovered and put an end to the speakeasy. Two years later, however, in 1933, when Prohibition officially ended, the Cocktail Lounge reopened and remains open to this day. They make a delicious and generous mojito. During the Prohibition era, the Monte Vista wasn't just known for being a speakeasy, it was also a part of radio history. Mary Costigan received her radio broadcasting license in 1927, making her the second woman in the world to receive one. Born in Detroit, Michigan in 1879, Costigan moved to Flagstaff in adulthood. Her brother John had relocated there some years before in hopes that the dry mountain air would help cure or at least diminish his tuberculosis. John managed the Orpheum Theater, which was still called the Majestic Opera House at that time, along with John Weatherford. But when his health began to deteriorate, he asked Mary to come help run the theater. Mary took over management of the Orpheum and in the meantime became a licensed commercial radio broadcaster. She set up a 25-watt station at the Opera House, the first registered radio station in northern Arizona, and eventually moved her station KFXY to the Monte Vista. Now broadcasting at 100 watts, 400 people showed up for her first broadcast there, which aired, according to a 1927 article from the Coconino Sun, three times a week. She was also a clever businesswoman, she opened and sold a flower business and a beauty shop, and was the only woman in the Flagstaff Chamber of Commerce at that time. Mary Costigan made radio history, and she did it at the Monte Vista Hotel. Hollywood also made its way to the Monte V. Westerns were hugely popular in the 30s and onward, and some of them were filmed in Flagstaff and the surrounding area. When stars like Gary Cooper, John Wayne, and Esther Williams came to Flagstaff, they chose to stay at the Monte Vista. 
Today, as you walk through the halls of the hotel, you can see which celebrity stayed in which room by golden plaques bearing their names placed on the doors. But some of the most famous Monte Vista guests were not Hollywood stars, famous authors, or radio pioneers. Some of them are famous because they checked in, but never checked out. The Monte Vista Hotel isn't just known for its history, but like so many other places with long, colorful pasts, the Monte Vista is renowned for its alleged hauntings. Let's explore now where the hotel's history meets local lore, and hear about some of the figures that many swear still haunt the rooms and hallways of the Monte Vista Hotel. There is not much in the way of primary sources for the following accounts, so take them with a grain of salt. Usually, I only discuss events that are pretty well documented. While the evidence may be less than ideal when it comes to the Monte Vista's most iconic hauntings, they are still part of local legend and are therefore worth exploring. Besides, ghost stories are fun. I stayed at the Monte Vista Hotel for two nights while I was researching this episode. It was supposed to be a 24-hour drive to Flagstaff, but ended up being 32 because I made a stop at so many historical markers. I have a very patient spouse. I loved staying at the Monte Vista. Management has kept it true to its 1930s ritzy ambiance. Everything from the light fixtures in the hallways to the bedspreads looked like something you'd expect to see in a hotel a hundred years ago. The amenities are a bit out of date, but that really only adds to its historic charm. I have some family in Flagstaff, which is why we were there, and the night before I checked into the hotel, my sister insisted we take a haunted tour of downtown Flagstaff. We booked a tour with freaky Flagstaff foot tours. We had a wonderful time, and our tour guide Sean, who said I could use his name, was an engaging host, and I could tell he was passionate about the history and the lore he was presenting. The tour took a little over an hour as we wandered the streets of downtown Flagstaff. While many of the other historic downtown buildings have their own local ghost stories, the Monte Vista took center stage on the tour. When Sean was leading us to the hotel, a passerby heard him say how haunted the hotel is said to be. The man laughed, and Sean asked him if he was staying at the hotel. The man replied no, he wasn't, but that he had stayed there a year ago, but left in the middle of the night because he felt like he wasn't alone in his room. Needless to say, I was getting pretty excited about staying there. The first Monte Vista story we heard about was that of the Meat Man. By the way, I'll put a link to both the tour and the hotel in the show notes, along with all my sources, as always. Sometimes, the Monte Vista would get long-term boarders, people who were between places, and use the hotel as a temporary home. In the 1980s, a butcher found himself in need of a place to stay for an extended period of time. And sometimes, he brought his work back to the hotel with him. He would hang raw meat from the chandelier. The legend doesn't say why he was there, 
but it's said that he kept to himself. He wasn't friendly and didn't seem to have much in the way of friends or family. So when he died in his room, he wasn't found for three days. His cause of death isn't known. At least, I couldn't find it. Not long after his body was found, weird things are said to have started happening in his room. A maintenance worker who was doing some repairs said he left the room and locked it to go get a new light fixture. When he returned only minutes later, the TV, which had been turned off, was turned up to full volume and the bedsheets had been torn and thrown around the room. Some guests have apparently reported the television turning on all by itself, a foul stench in the room, and some have even said they felt a pair of cold hands touching them while they were trying to sleep. Tour guide Sean said this all allegedly happened in room 217, which was particularly exciting because that's the first room I was staying in. The hotel website says the meat man's room is room 220, so there was some discrepancy there. These two rooms are across the hall from one another, so it would be easy to mix them up. But just in case I really was staying in the meat man's room, I bought a bag of beef jerky and I ate all of it, except for one piece right before I went to sleep, in hopes that maybe I could lure the meat man into doing something ghostly. Seems like a ghost butcher would be interested in some beef jerky. Unfortunately, nothing out of the ordinary occurred. The next story on the tour was about the phantom bellboy. Guests in room 210 have reported knocking on their door in the night, followed by a man saying, Room service. Supposedly, John Wayne, THE John Wayne, said he saw this phantom bellboy when he was a guest at the hotel and that he had a friendly presence. The only person who could really confirm that story would be John Wayne himself, but there really is a John Wayne room in the hotel. Perhaps the most disturbing account comes from room 306. I encountered two different hosts working at the hotel during my two days stay. I asked both of them separately if they had had any weird experiences. Both said yes, and both said their incidents occurred in room 306. This is the only room in the hotel that I know of that's said to be connected to murder. A double murder, no less. Flagstaff used to have a red-light district located south of the train tracks, well within walking distance of the Monte Vista. In the early 1940s, two sex workers were hired by a couple of businessmen and taken to room 306. At the end of the night, deciding they didn't want to pay for services rendered, the men threw the two women from the window on the third story. They both died in the fall. Legend holds the men were never held accountable for their crime. Many guests since have reported being awakened in the night with the disturbing feeling that they were being watched. Male guests have reported hands being placed over their mouths and throats as they were sleeping, making them unable to breathe. This sounds a bit like sleep paralysis to me, but if it's true that it's happened multiple times to male guests specifically, then yeah, I guess that's a bit weird. Naturally, I wanted to stay in room 306, but apparently right before I requested it, someone else had booked it. 
But I was in luck, because room 305 was available, and this, according to the hotel's own website, is by far the most active room. It's also the John Bon Jovi room, which is obviously awesome. The story of room 305 involves another long-term boarder, this time an elderly woman. Neither the hotel website nor our tour guide gave a specific year, but it's said that this lonely, elderly woman would rock for hours in a rocking chair, staring out the window. She died in room 305. Apparently, this room is popular with paranormal shows because of how often guests report activity there. Guests and hotel employees have reported seeing the rocking chair move on its own and said they've heard knocking coming from inside the closet. Others have reported seeing the old woman sitting there in her chair, rocking near the window. Tour guide Sean said that supposedly the old woman doesn't like it when you move things around. If you move something, it's said that sometimes she moves it back. Of course, I had to test this out. I moved everything I could. I moved the rocking chair so it was facing a different direction. I upturned a corner of the rug and the bedspread. I opened drawers, moved the phone, lamps, even opened the closet and moved the hangers around. I took before pictures of everything before I moved it and after pictures so I could remember exactly where I moved it. Then I left the room all day, hoping that something would be moved by the time I got back. Nothing happened during the day, so I left everything as I had moved it during the night, hoping something would be different by morning. I like to think of myself as sort of brave. I really was hoping that something weird would happen. But when night came and I was in that room, staring at that rocking chair... I am 100% sure that if I had seen that thing start rocking, I would have been out of there so fast. But unfortunately, again, nothing happened. I checked out the next day without incident. There are other stories of mysterious occurrences in the hotel. A transparent dancing couple in the cocktail lounge, a crying baby in the basement, even a bank robber that used to mess with a cigarette machine after dying in the cocktail lounge of bullet wounds after fleeing to the bar after a bank robbery. I cannot confirm based on my own experience that the Monte Vista is haunted, but I can confirm that it is a lovely, special place that has seen a lot of incredible history. It was a delightful stay, and I highly recommend visiting it if you're ever in Flagstaff. And if you do... Just make sure you don't become one of its guests who never checks out again. Thank you so much for listening to the history of the Monte Vista Hotel today. I certainly hope you enjoyed learning about it as much as I did. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me as always at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Thank you so much for listening. I know how many podcasts you have to choose from. So thank you for choosing mine today.
Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme songs from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, go make some history.